My name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And uh, man, this morning I have the task of starting a new series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And uh, man, I'm excited about this. Uh, You know, I've never heard a message on Esther. I've definitely never heard um, a series of messages through the book of Esther. True confessions of a seminary grad. I had not read thoroughly through the book of Esther until about three or so months ago. And so I'm really excited at the thought of learning and discovering this book together with all of you as we take um, this journey. And um, and I'm not going to lie, I'm also a little bit anxious about going through this book on account of the fact that it's, it's, it's new and um, I've never heard a message on it and I've never heard a series on it and I've never, you know, taken years and years and years to, 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 to look over it and to study it. So uh, that's a little... Um, stress-inducing. But um, on top of that, this book is going to surface some really tense and messy themes. Um, it's going to mess with our sensitivities. It's going to mess with our comfort. And uh, at Mission Port, we've never shied away from messiness, uh, but it's still not always the funnest thing to venture uh, into. So, so glad I get to be in this with you um, and we get to discover what the Lord has for us. And so uh, for us, we just want to take a book of the Bible and walk through it. There's no agenda. In fact, that's a big theme as we walk through this book. We want the Spirit of God to speak to us through his word. We are not imposing an agenda on this book. We want the Lord to to speak to, to us. So a couple of things I would say to you as we start this journey together. Number one, if you're a note taker, this will be a good opportunity for you to take notes. Um, but for those of you who are not note takers... Take notes. Um, we are going to be looking at um, the pretty large chunks of um, scripture as we make our way through. And I can't say enough how important it is for you to be able to maybe make a note and follow up on something later. Ask um, a few more questions and maybe interact with the people in your home or your, 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 your dorm room or, or you know, at work, wherever you um, further process um, these kinds of things. Uh, let me say one more thing uh, before we jump right in. Um, As we look at the book of Esther, we are going to be invited into a culture that is very different from ours. In a world and a time that's very different um, than ours. uh, With a group of people with different practices and priorities uh, than those that we might practice and and prioritize. And so, I, I just want to say, one of the most beautiful things I think we can grow in together as we enter into this series is just the art of being more curious and asking more questions. Instead of meeting a culture or meeting a person and immediately imposing our priorities and immediately, you know, imposing our thoughts and our practices and then judging or evaluating on that basis, I pray that through this process we will learn to ask more questions and be a little bit more curious and enter in with a little bit more um, openness. And I trust that that will translate not just from the way we approach this book, but the way we approach each other. And uh, man, how the church is so needed in a time like ours to be more like that in a culture that so quickly labels and so quickly imposes and so quickly jumps to conclusions. Okay. 
If you have a copy of the Bible, meet me in Esther chapter 1. If you go to the middle of the Bible, you're going to run into the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible. If you back up two books, it's the book of Esther. You're going to run into Job, and then you're going to run into Esther if you move um, backwards. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, no worries. The verses will appear up here on uh, the screen. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, see any one of us would love to give you a physical copy of the Bible that you can um, mark up and... Um, you know, turn pages and engage that way. Esther chapter 1. Here we go. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Okay. So the unnamed author of the book of Esther comes out of the gates and he wants his readers and us along with his readers to become quickly convinced that, hey, contrary to what you might hear and contrary to what you might be tempted to believe, uh, the following are actual events. The following are actual events that took place in our time and in our space and in our history. This is a true story. Matter of fact, it says it happened during the time of Xerxes. No, not that Xerxes. The other Xerxes. The one who reigned over 127 large provinces or countries for all intents and purposes. Xerxes the first, son of King Darius the Great, who some of us might know from the story of Daniel. That Xerxes. Um, and by telling us that and by giving us a little more detail about which Xerxes he's talking about, um, he plots this story about 500 years before Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene. Uh, but he doesn't just give us a sense of when this happens. He, he also gives us a sense of where. Verse number two. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from the royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Ruled over 127 countries, but his throne was in Susa. And the minute he tells us that, if we do a little bit more digging, we find out that Susa was the capital city of the mighty Persian empire, the undisputed superpower of the world at that time. Well, it had four capital cities, but Susa was the one where the kings went to winter. So we immediately have some sense of what it is that he's trying to lay out for us. Once upon a time, about 486 years before the dawn of Jesus Christ. During the reign of King Xerxes I, the following events took place in and around the city of Susa, which to us is modern day Iran. Man, I like the way he starts the book of Esther. For some of us who might struggle with the authenticity of the Bible, for some of us who might struggle um, with the strength of our faith, and maybe for some of you who are seniors in high school going off to college and you're going to be faced with all kinds of questions, maybe critiquing um, your faith, what another incredible reminder that your faith is 
so strong. I, I like the way this book opens because it's another reminder that our faith is not some kind of close your eyes and just believe blindly kind of faith. Our faith is based on actual events that happened in actual time and actual space and actual history. That way you can go back and you can ask questions and you can investigate it and you can see was this really true. I don't believe the Bible because I close my eyes and have faith. I believe the Bible for the same reason I believe George Washington existed. I haven't seen either of them. But history points to the fact that they existed. I just want to assure you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your faith is strong. It's built on actual events. You want to know why Jesus came down to our world in a physical body? So that our faith would be founded in time and space and history. And for me, that's even the resurrection. I don't believe the resurrection just because I close my eyes and believe. No, a man named Jesus lived, thousands of people saw him. A man named Jesus died, thousands of people saw him. And then mysteriously, three days later, hundreds and hundreds of people saw him walking around. I'm just asking the question, what's the best explanation for how somebody who died is now walking around? Maybe he rose like he said over and over and over and over and over again that he would. I like the way the book of Esther starts, inviting us back into the strength of our faith. Because listen, if this was a made-up fictional story, this is way too much information to be giving. And it's counterproductive because people can go and they tear it apart. And people have attempted to do that even with this Story, But I just wanted to pause and say, your faith is strong. Maybe to remind myself, my faith is strong. Esther chapter 1 verse 3. And in the third year of his reign, he, that's King Xerxes, gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And we start to learn a little bit more about this man named Xerxes. And this was a bad dude. History doesn't dispute the fact that he was the most wealthy and the most powerful man on the planet. But yikes though. So tells us about three years into his reign over the Persian Empire, uh, this cat Xerxes, who's now 35 years old, um, this dude throws a super party fitting for a super power and it is just dirty money. There is so much wealth in this conversation. It's insane. But the author wants us to get to know who this Xerxes character is a little bit more. Because I'm just asking you, how rich do you have to be to throw a six-month party? I'm just saying, even if it was just for your home or your roommate or your co-workers or just a few people, how rich do you have to be to throw a party for six months? And I like that the author says it was for 180 full days. In case you're tempted to think maybe they hit up just weekends and then they came back and they commuted and they traveled. He's like, oh no, 
all day, every day for 180 days. But do the math. Do the math. He was in charge of 127 provinces. And it says that the princes and military leaders and some of their, their, their officials showed up. Uber conservatively, we're talking about maybe 400 people. But more realistically, we are talking north of a thousand people. Mind you, these are royals and princes and military leaders. They don't travel across land and sea by themselves. They bring an entourage, a security detail, the massage artist. I mean, they bring everybody. And Xerxes hosted them all for 180 days. All you can eat of the world's best cuisine. All you can drink of the world's most expensive wines. Five-star accommodations for six months. I'm just saying. Those Jeff Bezos billions that we are so impressed with, nothing on this dude. This is a whole different level of wealth. And you want to talk about the kind of power that this man wielded at the age of 35? He reigns over 127 countries and he made maybe two calls and a couple of texts. And he got 127 countries to send their presidents, their leaders, their kings, their military personnel to show up at his house for 180 days. Drop everything because Xerxes said so and that dude is the boss. I'm telling you we have not seen in our recent history this kind of wealth and this kind of power consolidated in one person. This was a bad dude. Mind you, may I let you know, the next time we see this kind of power consolidated in one person who can bring that many leaders together in one place, start packing your bags. That's the Antichrist. The one world government, he's going to pull it off somehow. But it is so hard to pull off. And Xerxes at the age of 35, here he is. This is the way this dude rolled. And he's not even done. Verse 5. Because you may be tempted to think, man, 180 days run out of budget. Nope. Verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. What? After 180 days, he opens it up and puts everybody in the city on a guest list. Most countries in this world would go broke trying to pay the bill for this seven-day banquet that this dude threw. And how rich do you have to be to throw a banquet for the entire city and host it on your front garden porch? I'm just saying, this is a whole different level altogether. Not just any porch, by the way. Verse 6 says, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold, y'all, and silver. 
on a mosaic pavement. What kind of pavement? Well, made of porphyry and, and marble and, and mother of pearl and other costly stones just woven into the floor. Verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. He opened this up to the entire city and everyone got their own customized golden goblet. That's just a different level I'm saying to you right now. Um, anyway, the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality and catch flow. Verse 8. By the king's command... Each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. No comment. Okay, one comment. So did no one care that wine could possibly spill on the golden couches? That's what I want to know. But apparently when you roll in this echelon, it doesn't really matter. But we learned that while this was happening, he was footing the bill for another party that was going on simultaneously in the near vicinity. And this is where things start to get really interesting. Verse number 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for all the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Once again, how big does your house have to be? So, while the men are feasting and parting it up on the porch outside, we're introduced to the first lady of the Persian Empire, Vashti, the queen. She's hosting a women's banquet inside the palace, which raises the first hmm, moment in the book. Um... Because up until this point, I would have been foolishly tempted, and you might have been if you weren't smarter than, than, than I am, uh, to, to think that when it said that King Xerxes um, invited all the people of the city of Susa, that it, it meant that he invited all the people <laughs> from the city of Susa. No, turns out he invited all the men. In the city of Susa. And it's in this moment that we discover a thick line that is drawn between the men and the women. Now at this point we know what the floors are made of. But we don't yet know what this line is made of. But the author is about to fill it in with a little bit of tension. And this is going to set the stage for the rest of the story. Verse number 10. On the seventh day, when kings... This is very beautifully put, by the way. This was, this was some of us this, this weekend, right? When King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. You can learn their real names on your own time. It was me, it was Biz, it was Bones, it was Biggie, it was Abs, it was Z Money, and it was Carcass. <laughs> to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. 
in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. For she was lovely to look at. So, uh, King Xerxes has had a little too much to drink. And under the influence of alcohol, he commands his wife to present herself to him so that he can show off her beauty to this urinal union of men who are gathered on his front porch. I mean, he's been parading his wealth. He's been parading his power. And now he orders his wife to present herself so that he can parade her to this men-only gathering. So that thousands of dudes can stare and admire her physical attributes and her beauty. Because apparently she was lovely to look at. Um, I mentioned this as we got started, and uh, man, now is a great time for us to start practicing. This is not a comment as much as it is a question. How do you feel about that? Okay? I love that. I appreciate that. And if you've not taken time to think about it, feel free to take time to think about it. And you're going to hear me encourage you over and over again to please take time to think about how do you respond to this? How how do you respond to the king's request slash order to the queen? Um... How do you process what Xerxes just did as a man sitting in this room or watching this online? How do you respond to what Xerxes just did as a woman sitting in this room or maybe engaging this at a later time? We want to be more curious and to ask more questions. And for some of us, we may say, I know what my sister said, but some of you may say, I like that. Man, I like that. This dude is so proud of his wife's beauty, he wants everybody to see it. I wish somebody found me so beautiful and so elegant and so rare that they would stop the world to put me on display. That kind of beauty, that kind of, I wish. And then you have somebody else who says, oh, angry. You, you, you don't parade a person like there's some kind of a product. Like there's some kind of a, a thing. That's not how you treat people. That's not how you treat anyone. That's definitely not how you treat a woman. And others of you may say, yeah, I'm... Furious, 
by that. That is so demeaning and it is objectifying of her physical attributes. Because you know exactly what those dudes or at least a chunk of them are going to start to think about when they behold her and her beauty. And then there may be some of you who just may linger in the middle and you may say, well, I, I don't know. I guess I need more information. How I feel about it depends on whether or not she was willing to do it. How I feel about it depends on how she felt about it. Was she willing? I'm asking, how do you feel about this? And again, I cannot say enough. Part of the reason I'd encourage you to take notes so you can really wrestle through and, and process things like this. Is there an appropriate way to feel about something like this? Because it is going to show up a lot through the course of this book. It'll be really good for you to have some thoughts about how you feel about this and maybe even why. Think about it. Ask each other, your small group or your, your, your roommate or somebody at work, whatever the case is, because this matters. Yeah, I'm a dad of daughters. I would be furious. If my daughter was paraded and, 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 and a bunch of dudes were gawking at my daughter. Great. So you're against men gawking at people's daughters. Whether it's your daughter or someone else's daughters. Because every woman is someone's daughter. And you're going to bring that same energy when it's someone else's daughter, right? It matters how you think about this. Um, or maybe somebody will say, this is absolutely wrong. You, 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 you do not put somebody up there so that people can appraise a person based on their physical attributes. I'm like, great. I, if, if that's what you think, that's great. And I hope that's the same energy that you bring to your Instagram account. I hope that's the same energy you bring to, 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 to what pictures you like or dislike or what accounts you follow or don't follow. I hope that's the same energy you bring to, well, I feel extra spicy today, so I'm going to post a picture so people can appraise it, right? It matters how we think about these things. But we not, we not be tempted to, to, to interact with it much, but it's a question, but at this point, believe it or not, how we feel about it is not the point. Because um, Vashti had some feelings. Verse number 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Um, Your Highness... Your excellentnesses. Um, the king has requested your immediate uh, presence. And he has asked that you please wear the royal crown. Vashti is like. Oh. Oh. Okay. So. The king wants me to go to the. To the bro show over there. And uh, like right now, okay, um, so no. That's going to be a strong no for me. 
and uh, thank you very much. I can imagine that if she still had some of her high school friends who are still hanging out with her now in her queen days, uh, they are looking at her like, um, Vash, mm girl, this is not the move. Oh, no. Live to see another day. This is not it. But apparently... For Vashti, her decision was made. She had every opportunity to change her mind, to think about what she had said, to say to the seven dudes, like, hey, go, all right, all right, all right, yeah, yeah, all right, all right. But no, her decision is final. She gives a decisive nope. Thank you very much. And it's her response That will set up the stage for us to meet Esther. But it raises the question again. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about Queen Vashti's response? She just said absolutely not to her husband who also happens to double as the most powerful man on the planet. How do you feel? Because some of us, if we took time to think about it, may say like, negative, I don't like that. Like, I appreciate that you and your husband may have some tension, but how can you honestly humiliate him in front of the entire world right now? Y'all need to work this out in private, but in the meantime, at least put on a solid front. How can you do this to him? Others may respond to something like this and say like, You go, girl. Have some man beckon you and summon you. Tell you what to do. You put your foot down and you say absolutely not. And some of you may feel conflicted about this. Like, I'm not, I, I'm not quite entirely sure how to feel. I'm neutral. I feel like I need a little bit more information. Like was Vashti sick? I don't know. I feel like I need a little more information. Was like she on attempt number five on Wordle? You don't just leave that. Did Vashti maybe know what Xerxes was like when he had been drinking? And she decided like I'm going to take my chances on what he may do later when he sobers up. But for now, it's a no. How do you feel? Be more curious. Ask more questions. Um, But think about this. I think this matters. I'd be curious, by the way, if... If you had a daughter or, or friend or a cousin or a sister and they were in Vashti's situation, what would you have advised her to do? And why? 
Well, it's not really as pertinent what I think about it at this point, uh, because Xerxes has some feelings. Needless to say, when word gets back to the king, who at this point is probably like, oh, 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 just wait. She's coming, y'all. She says, I saved the best for last. Just hang on a second. She's... What would you say, Z-Money? When he finds out, verse 12, second part, the king became furious and he burned with anger. Where's the queen? King Xerxes, where's the queen? Hey, where's Vashti? You keep my wife's name. Okay. Um, (laughs) Y'all watch too much TV. (laughs) The most powerful man on earth is livid. After six months and seven days of flaunting and, and flexing his power and his might in front of 127 countries. And all of a sudden, he can't convince his wife to do one thing. After convincing 127 at least Leaders of different kinds to drop everything and come across land and sea thousands of miles. He can't convince his wife to walk out of the house. Scratch that. He can't convince her to be carried out of the house. Because that's what those seven dudes were for. Oh, he's humiliated. Dude is absolutely furious. And then he earns a little bit of my respect. Verse number 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Feel free to learn their names on your own time. This is Brother Karsh and, and Thar and, and, and Math and Tar and Mir and Mar and Mamam Yukin. Um, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. These seven men with the ability to gain special insight, uh, some of them through um, magic arts and divination, some of them through astrology, some of them just... A man had a special understanding of, of the time. Some of them were just really well read. And he had this group of seven advisors. This was the only group of people who were allowed to come into the presence of the king without being summoned or without special permission. They could come in whenever they wanted to. Everybody else, it was a capital offense. You don't come unless you're requested. His most trusted advisors... And in a moment of rage, it blew my mind that he had the wherewithal to ask for some advice. I'm very mad, guys. 
and I'm also very drunk. And I don't want to make a rash move. Man, we could learn from that. So please advise me, what should I do? Verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed uh, the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. He's so mad at speaking about himself in third person now. Anyway, Kondo will keep reading the word of the Lord. Verse 16, then Memamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. And this is a crafty dude, by the way. Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king, but against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. Wow. So he immediately condemns Vashti's actions. What she did was absolutely wrong for refusing an order from the king. And then he goes even further. Now he's amplifying the conversation. And you get a sense that the king had asked the advice of a few of his people. And this guy then blew up the conversation to make it very public in the presence of at least, you know, the reps from 127 different countries. Brilliant move. Brilliant move. She's wronged us all, king. Verse 17. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they would despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Verse 18, this very day he went from one day they will to it's happening already. It's brilliant. The Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and disrespect. He just amplifies it and takes it from an issue between two people and makes it an issue of 127 people. And goodness sakes, we have to watch out for that. Whenever something that happened with one person or two people is amplified to become all the people, it is a dangerous move. And this guy plays it absolutely brilliantly. And some scary moments ensue. Um... Because now he pressures the king to make a global decision because what she did affects us all. And what you decide next, you decide for all of us, king. So go ahead. What's your move? If you don't deal with this drastically, the wheels will come off the kingdom and there'll be no end to the chaos. And women everywhere will stop feeling obligated to obey the men in their lives. If the queen can disregard the most powerful man on the planet, what are the other women in the world going to say to their husbands who can't even boil an egg, right? So he uses this rationale to pressure the king. Next thing you know, the women will start thinking for themselves, you know, and, and a pure pandemonium will ensue. Nay, king, nay. Now, we are going to get to some of these messy topics as the Esther continues. But man, it is so striking. Wherever you find the subjugation of women by men, you will find men who are incredibly scared and insecure. 
It is driven by fear and insecurity. Why? Because listen, if we can earn their respect, we've got to order it. You've got to write something that's a mandate so that we can force what we cannot win. And so here we go, king. It's on you. You've got to prevent this mass chaos. Verse number 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. Make sure that it cannot be reversed, king, that Vashti, and for the first time, she is addressed without her royal title, is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she is. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest, because that's how you get it done. This is setting the stage for this story. Cut her off and strip her of her crown. Send a message to women everywhere. That way, they will comply with the wishes of the men in their lives. This is a scary moment. Verse number 21. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. Seemed good to the men. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. So it becomes a global law. Men Get the final word in their homes. They pull rank. In other words, women must obey the men in their lives. Sorry, babe. It's not me. It's the law. Honey, it's not me. It's the Bible. So I ask for a final time. How do you feel about that? As a man, how do you feel about a group of men sitting in a room and making a law that subjugates women and has them pulling rank? As a woman, how do you feel reading something like this? I really want us to engage this and think about the questions for our own lives and for our own families and for our own culture and for our world. What's our response to that? Okay, you can already see that there are... There are going to be some heavy and messy topics in our future. You can already see that there will be um, 
different feelings and responses to the various issues. Which is why I felt so compelled as I read this for myself and for us as a church to plead with us. And I'm going to say it again and we'll even put it on the screen. Be more curious. Ask more questions. Be more curious. Ask more questions. And more specifically, I want us to think about how we feel and how we process things. And I even want us to go so far as to challenge our own um, instinctive trigger responses. As we engage this story, we're going to meet a culture that's very different from ours, that practices very different things than the things we practice. And it's going to be very tempting for us to superimpose our culture and superimpose our feelings on them. It's going to be very tempting for us to superimpose our moral values onto a different cultural context. It's going to be very easy for us to come into a book like this and come into a culture like this or come into a political party like that one and immediately just have a very strong conclusion about how my feelings must be right because and I want us to think about how do we feel and then we want to weigh the way we feel and the way we process ask more questions to be a little bit more curious and and maybe see if in the midst of that we won't find ourselves learning and growing and being stretched and being a little bit more like Jesus um Let me, man, confess some of the ways this was even revealed to me as I was reading this um, story. I read this story, and when I did, I immediately started to impose my own ideals and my own beliefs and my own priorities, and I started to impose my own labels. I didn't ask a lot of questions. So when I started reading this book and I met Xerxes, my immediate response to Xerxes was Xerxes the Arrogant. Xerxes the Arrogant. What kind of dude is going to throw a 180 day party to just show off all of his stuff except an incredibly arrogant guy? Turns out Xerxes had a problem. And Xerxes' problem was the Greek Empire. They were knocking on the superpower door and they were threatening to take this guy down. He knew, matter of fact, about four years after the events of Esther, he's going to go to war against the Greeks. And he knew he had to go to war against the Greeks. If you were going to go to war against your rival, the Greeks, you are going to need to build an army. And if you're going to need to build an army, you're going to need to reinforce loyalty. And if you're going to reinforce loyalty, you've got to figure out a way to inspire your entire kingdom. So he throws a six-month party. In order to remind all of the people under his leadership, hey, listen, y'all have chosen the right side. And I'm telling you, if you stay loyal to me, these are the kinds of amenities that you're going to be able to enjoy. This was not a party. It was a military strategy on Xerxes' part. Wooing people he knew were going to have to go to war for him. I'm like, I didn't know that. I just jumped into conclusions. And then here he is with all of his drunk buddies, a bunch of drunk alcoholics. That was the thing I thought immediately. Did you know that in the Persian Empire, they would never have dreamed of making a major decision without alcohol? 
He would never have made a decision unless he was drunk. What? Because they believed that alcohol had a way of loosening your inhibitions, which made you more vulnerable, which put you more in touch with your gut. So they would all drink, and when they got drunk, they would make major decisions, and somebody would script them, script them, and script them, and script them. And then when they were sober, he would read it back to them. And if they liked what they decided when they were drunk, when they were sober, it passed. If they were sober, they would make a bunch of decisions and then they would look them over when they were drunk. And if they liked what they saw when they were drunk because they decided when they were sober, it would pass. He kept the alcohol going because he was making global decisions about war with all of his leaders. I'm like, I didn't know that. Which explains why as drunk and angry as he was, he would not make a decision about Esther. Without pulling his people in. And going through his process. You know, him and his sexist pigs, right? That was my immediate thought. Because, I mean, this patriarchal culture and these sexist pigs. Now, I, I, don't, I don't live in a patriarchal home currently. But I did grow up in one. Uh, and in my home growing up, my dad was the boss. He pulled rank. He was in charge. What he said went at the end of the day. But in a patriarchal culture like the one I grew up in, um, it was defined primarily by his ability to protect and provide for his family. I can still remember one night during an era there were a lot of home invasions. We heard some noises outside the house in the middle of the night. My dad got up and he circled the house maybe for an hour while the rest of us were inside just hoping he comes back in unscathed. <laughs> and I remember that striking me like, oh my gosh. The buck stops with you, but so does the bullet. It's really interesting, right? Xerxes has this thing for men only. And I'm like, you jerk. Now, he may be a jerk, but the rationale for this was, these are the people I am calling to go to war and die to protect your wives and your children. I would never think to invite that group of people into uh, this military strategy. It is your job to be willing to die. It is your job to be willing to protect. That's why he was having the meeting with a group of men. How do I feel about that? I need to be more curious. I need to ask more questions. And then I met Vashti. I'm Vashti the Great. Then I got to know Vashti a little bit and I'm like, Vashti the Great? I don't know. I like Vashti. Um, I don't know much about her. But here's the interesting thing. Vashti has been a polarizing figure. Because for the feminist movement, she is a revolutionary. She is a hero who stuck it to the men, right? And she stood up in a culture of, of patriarchy and, and you know male superiority. And she just took a stand against it. Then you have people on the other hand who say Vashti is a selfish, entitled, privileged woman. You're like, what? 
Did she even take a moment to think about how her decision would affect the rest of us? Because now I have to do what my husband says every time because of what she decided. And let's be honest, the rule and the law that these men are making is because they want their wives to comply when it comes to one thing. And it's not doing household chores. They were too rich for that. They had people for that. This is such a gross law in what it's intended to do. And so you can imagine there's a movement that's saying like, if you had even thought about anyone other than yourself, you should have taken one for the team. And then you have theologians who I've heard say like, Vashti's a picture of a non-submissive wife. It matters how you think about Vashti though. Because if you say Vashti, yes, she's awesome. She stood up to the establishment and she stuck it to the men. What are you going to do with Esther who complied? If you say, well, no, Vashti, she should have, she should have taken one and sacrificed for, for the rest of Everybody and, and addressed these issues. What are you going to do with Esther? Esther didn't address any of these things when she was in her royal position. She went after a completely different issue. I was just struck by how important it is. Lord, please help me to enter into experiences with other people a little more curious and ask a little more questions. Help me to understand a little bit more. Maybe why they vote the way they vote or maybe why they think the way they think or maybe why they raise their kids in ways that I'm like, are y'all crazy? And the world needs a little bit more of that. And it exemplifies Jesus who stepped into our experiences so he could feel our pain and walk our path before he talked about how he could be part of our redemption story. It's going to be a stretching exercise. It's going to be a stretching conversation. I, I, I just encourage you to continue to be more curious. Ask more questions. And we trust the Lord will meet us as we process through this book together. So Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege we have of learning and being stretched and and maybe even encountering that behind certain things, the things we may not fully understand, help us with each other, with our families, with our roommates, with our workmates, to maybe just pause a little bit and maybe put our instinctive reactions just on hold for a little bit to ask a few more questions, learn a little bit more, get in touch with how we're processing things and why. And as we do that, help us to grow, to be more like your son Jesus Christ. He came to the earth and he knew we were all wrong. And yet he asked questions and he walked in our place and beautifully redeemed us. So Father, thank you so much. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.